HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be talking about the drought. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, the fact that today is um, the release date for the new National Climate Assessment Report. Uh, so to discuss that with me is Claire O'Connor from the National Resources Defense Council. Claire is an attorney and the Agricultural Water Policy Analyst for the NRDC in the Santa Monica office. She focuses on designing and implementing solutions to water challenges that are good for both farmers and people who eat the food that farmers grow. Claire grew up as the fifth generation of family farmers in rural Nebraska. Her family taught her the importance of protecting natural resources so that future generations can carry on the family business. Today, her work focuses on those same principles, using those same principles to promote food that is safe, healthy, and sustainable. She is a graduate of Georgetown University Law Center and the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Um, welcome to the program, Claire. Thanks a million for taking time out today. I'm happy to be here. It's exciting. I always love my NRDC guests. You guys are always so incredibly well-informed. It's always a pleasure. So um, <clears throat> today, as I mentioned, is the, uh, the release of the new National Climate Assessment Report. Um, it had some rather dire predictions, um, but you have a plan. And uh, I'm going to quote something that you wrote in a press release, Reforming National Crop Insurance Program. So farmers are encouraged to invest in smart water strategies that build soil health. And the other uh, plan you have is on evaluating California agricultural water management districts and plans. So give us a thumbnail, because, of course, California being our breadbasket in many regards, um, or rather our fruit and vegetable basket, um, we would really have a hard time if California dries up completely, right? That's, that's exactly right. California produces um, almost half of the fruits and vegetables that we eat in this country, and yet right now the entire state is in a drought, which is really concerning. Um, and farmers are on the front line of that drought, and so they're the ones that are feeling the, the hardest impact, some of the hardest impacts from this dry weather. 
So what what were the uh, so one of the things that you talk about <clears throat> is reforming national crop insurance programs. So crop insurance, I think you should give a little explanation of what that is, because I'm sure you can do it better than I can. And then what would you do differently? Yeah, well, crop insurance is our biggest federal farm subsidy that we have right now. Um, almost 300 million acres across the United States are enrolled in this program. Um, it's sort of a public-private partnership. Um, although the taxpayers fund um, a portion of the program, it's administered by a handful of actually private crop insurance companies from some of the biggest names in, in, in insurance, such as Ace or Wells Fargo, um, some pretty familiar names that are, that are actually administering the program with farmers. Um, and, you know, there's sort of a – I say it's the biggest – the biggest federal farm subsidy, um, when you think about some of the scale of, of, of weather challenges that farmers have faced in recent years, for example, in 2012, we lost $17.4 billion worth of crops. And so, yeah. um, so we're talking about a really big federal program here. I think it cost us $17.3 billion. That's what we paid out. What the government paid uh, yeah, out so in that, crop insurance. That was the yeah. amount of crop. That was the value of crops that were lost right. in 2012. Um, and you know, we've had a couple record-breaking years in a row. Um, 2000. We thought 2011 was bad when we when we lost almost 11 billion dollars worth of crops. And here we come, 2012 at 17.4 billion. Wow. Um, and you know, we're still totaling up the losses from last year, but it's it's nearing 12 billion dollars again. So. Um, so that really speaks to some of the challenges that farmers have faced um, in recent years from extreme weather. And those, and that that extreme weather includes is not limited to just drought. It also includes things like hailstorms, tornadoes, um, flooding. So it's all of these it, different extreme weather patterns that have manifested. Exactly right. And not all of those are covered by crop insurance. But, you know, take a look at just last year, 2013. That was sort of a really, you know, we've had some extreme years lately, but 2013 was especially an oddball year. Um, We started out the year with really wet weather that prevented a lot of farmers from getting into the field to plant their crops. So we had a lot of what are called prevented planting claims where, you know, it just never, it never dried up enough to be able to drive your big heavy tractor into the field and be able to plant your crops. Right. But then if you were able to get in the field, by summertime we had one of the hottest years on record and we had a lot of drought claims too. And so, you know, it's just one thing after the other for farmers lately and and um, you know, it's your your window of opportunity to, to get in the field, your window of opportunity to harvest is getting smaller and smaller and that means um, and that means a lot of challenges for farmers. Yeah, it's, it's I, boy, I'd, I'd throw in the towel myself. So the, <clears throat> one of the things that you write is that the federal crop insurance program has failed farmers and taxpayers by ignoring water challenges. And the program that you at NRCC, or the, sorry, the, the, uh, the program, the farm insurance program, was designed to be a safety net, not a subsidy for increasingly risky practices and for less sustainable food production. So, and we need to empower farmers to invest in low-risk, water-smart practices uh, that are proven to reduce crop, crop loss. So what are, what are you talking about here? What are the risky practices and what, how would you fix that? Yeah, so there's sort of a, the big irony about crop insurance is that in some ways it's worked really well. It's allowed, I've just been talking about all these extreme weather events that farmers have been faced with in recent years, but we haven't seen the scale of farmers going out of business like we saw, for example, in the 1980s. So on a year-to-year basis, this program is working well. It's giving farmers the risk management tool that they need to get back into the field and try again. 
But where it's not doing well is in encouraging farmers to, um, to really evaluate their long-term risk. And we know that climate change is going to bring, is already bringing, um, more severe challenges for farmers. And this program um, is not set up to help farmers meet those challenges. It's not encouraging farmers to take a really holistic look at how they're managing their risk. And, in fact, mm-hmm. it's actually encouraging some practices that, um, that might be um, a good a good decision in the short run, right. but over the right. long run are going to be more risky and, and cause um, cause more challenges for farmers. Amazing. So um, give us an idea of what would a low-risk water smart practice be? Like what would they do? Like is that cover crop planting? Is it uh, better irrigation techniques? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a farmer, so you tell me what that <laughs> is. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So we, we um, anything that you can any, the best insurance policy that farmers have is their soil. Mm-hmm. Um, healthy soil can hold more water. It can absorb more water when we have these extreme rain events like we've seen. Right. Um, and so that's, that's really where we need to be encouraging farmers to, to look at how they're managing their risk and to encourage farmers to really use their soil as a risk management tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, that's exactly right. It's doing things like planting cover crops or going to no-till or conservation tillage in order to um, really, um, really conserve that soil, prevent erosion, really make it a dynamic um, ecosystem there right underneath, right underneath our feet. Um, you know, there are more organisms in a teaspoon of soil than there are over the entire face of the earth, which is pretty amazing to think about. Um, and, and when we feed that ecosystem and when we, um, when we protect it, that, mm-hmm. that pays dividends for farmers in terms of their ability to respond to these extreme weather challenges that we're having recently. Mm-hmm. Now, would those strategies like doing a cover crop, would that be um, practical? Obviously, that would be practical in the sense of somebody who does intensive corn or soy farming, right? Um, but is it practical also with people who are growing fruits and vegetables? I mean, does it, do, the, do the solutions work equally well for both sides of the, of the aisle, as it were? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the neat things about cover crops is that there's really no set way to do them. You can, you can incorporate them in whatever way works for your organization or for your operation. Um, so, for example, a lot of the, the wine growers, the grape growers in California were some of the first to really bring back this concept of cover crops by mm-hmm. planting them in between their rows. Um, and so, you know, in, in corn and soybean farmers, you'll, you'll see them planted after the harvest um, when you would normally have just a bare field. Yeah. Um, and so, so you add more days of the year that there's something green and growing and contributing to that soil ecosystem that I was discussing. Right. Um, so yeah. it, works, it works well in that situation, but it also does work well in, in your, more, um, your more fruits and vegetables or, or, um, or other specialty crop type, right. type operations as well. Um, is it, why aren't farmers already doing this? I mean, I would think that, is it expensive to do that? Cause I would think they would well, be all over this concept. Like, why would you not? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to have a field that is super dry with, you know, winds blowing across it in the winter. You know, I mean, your soil just goes away, right? You just blow it away. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the huge benefit of cover crops is they yeah. really add that extra protection. Um, and we have seen a recent, um, a recent growth in the adoption of cover crops. There was just some um, USDA Census of Agriculture information um, that came out late last week showing that cover crops are growing exponentially across the United States, and that's great news. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's still, there's still a long ways to go because I think part of it is, and, you know, I grew up on a farm, so I'm used to this mentality, but farming is a very 
can be a very tradition-based type of a career. You know, you're doing something that your dad did and your grand and your grandfather did, um, and so it it can be a little a little um, uneasy to try to change some of those traditions or change the way you've been doing something for a long time. Um, and it does require some upfront costs and extra labor um, in terms of, you know, you have to buy those extra seeds and you have to get in the field another time to plant them. Right. And, um, and so it does require some extra costs, but, um, but, the, but what we're seeing is that the investment that farmers are making in cover crops is really paying off for them. I, would think um, so. I was talking earlier about the 2012 drought that really wreaked havoc across the across the Midwest, drying up, um, drying up billions of dollars worth of crops. But farmers who were using cover crops had higher yields than farmers who were um, than farmers who didn't use cover crops, mm-hmm. and that that yield benefit was most pronounced in the areas that were hardest hit by the drought. So that really speaks to the power of cover crops. Mm-hmm. in terms of making farmers more resilient to some of these extreme weather challenges. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, Claire. I've, I've also heard that with other guests, that um, that basically you plant these cover crops and the, and the soil is able to hold water more effectively even if there's nothing planted in it at that moment. It's still... Um, it's still it just becomes a richer a richer product uh, in which you can plant your regular crops. Um, what about farms outside of California? Are those um, you know you're seeing a big upsurge in in cover crops growing in California? Are you seeing it across the nation? Is that what you just told me? And I'm spacing it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So across the nation, we are seeing we are seeing more cover crops, and and I think. Um, you know, it, like I said, it has it has applications in California. It has applications outside of California. And honestly, you know, I think that there's the most potential in these in these large corn and soybean operations that we see across the Midwest because um, yeah. because not yeah. only will you have that that longer, typically a longer period of of bare soil or bare you know time when nothing's growing, but you also you know you see a lot of farms that are either just corn after corn or corn and soybean, you know, a yeah. one or two crop rotation. And so adding these cover crops in really um, helps to add some diversity back into that soil profile. Um, and, you know, you were mentioning about how the soil can hold more water. It kind of makes sense when you think about it because cover crops are going to have different roots. And so when those roots burrow down into the soil, they're going to create different sort of channels for the water to soak into. Then, you know, if you're planting the same thing year after year, you mm-hmm. don't get those different types of root channels. So mm. um, it, it makes it more like a sponge with lots of big pores that water is able to soak into. Fascinating. You know, I was recently in Vietnam, and of course I, I took a special note of the uh, agricultural practices because Vietnam is largely still an agrarian country. And they are planting a lot of corn, which really surprised me um, huh. because I don't think of the Vietnamese as a corn-eating population. Um, but they grow it a lot for for uh, for livestock and they and they do eat it, um, but they grow every corn plant is grown with a, a green bean plant and with a um, something else. I think it was maybe squash or taro, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated by that because I thought, well, how smart is that? You know, because your one protects the other. Somehow there's like a, they've figured out this kind of synergy between the three crops that uh, makes the yields higher for all three of them and is better for the soil, et cetera, et cetera. And they. You know, it didn't take Monsanto to tell them to do that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've seen that a couple times here in the United States where you would have... Um, where you'd have a corn plant, um, and you know the neighbors must must think that these guys are crazy for doing this because you don't see it very often here in the United States. So it's kind of these these um, 
where you where you have the neighbors driving past going, oh, what's that crazy guy doing now? But I have <laughs> seen where you have the, the corn plant and maybe a soybean plant next to it because, of course, the the soybean plant would provide some nit- nitrogen to the corn. And as you talked about, you know, the, they feed each other and protect right. each other. And so it's it really is interesting when you can get creative and think about um, think about some of you know are we are we are we treating the symptom with all these chemicals that we're that we're putting on our right. our um, plants or are we really getting to the root cause of the problem which is our, and really trying to to think critically about about how we're managing our crops and whether we're managing managing the symptoms or the underlying problems. Yeah, very, so a lot very of cases, weeds, um, diseases, pests those are those are just symptoms of a lack of diversity in our agricultural system. Yeah, I was just going to say monocropping has got to be. Uh, the worst idea ever, no matter how efficient it is. I don't care. You know, it's like, it's just not a good idea. Um, and I know there's been a, like at the University of Iowa, uh, there was a young guy who um, came up with the idea of different crop rotations and you add one more crop into the rotation. And I was amazed by, I read this on like Drover's Cattle Network or something. I read all those trades and, and, uh, and the people who wrote in were like, yeah, trust these university elites to come up with some idea to make more work for us farmers. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> I thought, no, really? Like, I mean, this could actually really help you, bro. You know, you'd be spending a lot less yeah, money on fertilizer. Exactly, exactly. But I do think I, I'm familiar with the study you talked about. It was amazing mm-hmm. how how just simply adding that diversity back in fixed a lot of those problems yeah. that farmers are confronting. And you're the one area in his study where it was like, you know, we need less chemicals, less pesticides, less less fertilizer, less right. everything. The one area that was more was um, was farm labor. And, and you mm-hmm. know, it's like, well, you know, Having a few extra jobs in in rural America probably isn't a terrible thing. So probably um, not. But, but if you, you're you know margins. you are seeing you are seeing um, you are seeing that that type of information being well received. I talked about how cover crops are are increasing across the Midwest even, mm-hmm. and so and so that's really encouraging. And I think you know I think farmers get it. They you know they might not they might want, not want to talk to you about you know climate change, but they look around and they do see that that something's happening, and yeah. they see that. You know, it snowed in May, and there's um, right. and it's been crazy, and and they see that, and so they're um, even if they won't engage you on the politics of climate change, they they know that something's going on. Oh yeah, I I get that sense. I mean, I think most. Uh, I I mean, I'm generalizing, and I really am just kind of making this up as I go along. But I mean, <laughs> I do get the sense that the the rural community, the agricultural community, has come to terms with the idea of climate change. They're not going to tell you that it's man made. They're certainly not going to you know. <laughs> cop to anything like that or that they might contribute to it say if they're in the uh you know livestock business but um they are aware that it is definitely happening and i think a lot more guys are coming on board with as you see as you are you know as you're suggesting with uh with strategies to manage this um let's move on for a second uh, to water management you um you make this point uh california is a dry state expected to only get drier yet we're also the leading agricultural state in the nation so it's critical that agricultural water suppliers lead the way in planning for a drier future and encourage customers to be smarter about their water use so and yet at the same time i read that only 30 percent of state counties are in compliance with the 2009 regulations about water use um so maybe you could tell us quickly what the regulations are and why you think the compliance is so low given that california has really taken it on the chin with the drought yeah it's um it's been pretty pretty crazy out here in california um like I said, 100% of the state now experiencing drought yeah. conditions. Um, and this isn't something that, that 
we woke up yesterday and realized it's going to happen to California. <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> back in 2009, the state legislature passed a whole, uh, whole comprehensive legislative package called the Water Conservation Act. Mm-hmm. And it included a few things that were applicable to state irrigation districts, so agricultural water districts that provide water to farms here in California. Um, and there were basically three requirements for these irrigation districts. They needed to first create an what's called an agricultural water management plan. So start thinking about how climate change is going to affect their water supply, how, what types of water demands they might have in the future, what types of conservation practices they're, they're using within their district. Um, and then second, they were supposed to begin measuring their deliveries to customers. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who gets a monthly water bill, it's a little, it's a little crazy to think about the fact that a lot of, um, a lot of farmers don't really, in California, don't have any idea um, exactly how much water they're using. And in wow. fact, the, the irrigation districts um, that are supplying their water are not um, measuring how much they're delivering to any individual customers in a lot of cases. Wow. And then the third requirement was that these districts start charging their customers based in part by, the, at least in part, by the amount of water that they're using. Right now, a lot of farmers here in California are charged on a per acre basis or just a flat um, a flat annual rate. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, as someone who gets a monthly water bill that's based on how much water I use in my home, um, it, it can be a little shocking to realize that, um, that not all farmers are being charged based on the amount of water that they use. That, that's, there's something, uh, you know, really weird and wrong somehow about that, even though, I mean, you know, back in the day, who would ever begrudge a farmer water? But um, in these days of tighter supplies, I, I, I feel like there's some kind of an analogy there with the federal grazing uh, rights. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Clive and Bundy, right, who's saying, why should yeah. I have to pay for land that I actually own already because I'm a taxpayer? You know, and, you know, there is sort of a sense of like, you know, everybody's got to chip in their fair share there. I mean, why do they why are they getting it free? and you're paying. I mean, I think there's, of course, on the other well, hand, they're only, supplying our food. Well, not only that, but the districts that are not measuring and are not, um, and are not using these, um, these use-based rates are, mm-hmm. are doing their farmers a disservice because they're not preparing, they're not helping their farmers prepare for the right. realities of climate change. Um, and to, right. to not even have a plan for how you're going to deal with those new challenges is really, it's doing a disservice to the farmers. Um, and and unless we get serious about about really managing our water here in the state, it could be it could be a big problem not only for farmers but for all of us that like fruits and vegetables here in this country. Well, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> just affect you in California. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll all be paying a whole lot more for those fruits and vegetables we're supposed to be eating every day. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, We have to take a very short break right now, Claire, but uh, stay with us and audience, you stay with us and we'll be right back with Claire O'Connor from the National Resources Defense Council. We're talking water and agriculture and we'll be right back. Thanks. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. 
We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. We're talking today about uh, the drought on the West Coast and agriculture and its impact on agriculture. My guest is Claire O'Connor from the National Resources Defense Council. Um, So we were talking about water management techniques and and, um, water management practices, and now I I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about techniques for water management. Aside from monitoring usage, what other techniques are available to farmers to, uh, re- you know, like reduce their uh, consumption, basically? Well, actually, monitoring usage is, is actually one of the best things that you can do mm-hmm. because, because crops need different amounts of water at different parts of their growing season. So right. if, if you can monitor how much your crop needs at that specific day and really time your irrigation water for those moments where it's the most critical, um, you can significantly reduce the amount of water that you're, that you're applying while still um, enjoying really high yields. And so we've seen this work everywhere from, um, from Nebraska, where I'm from. There is a study that showed that, um, that farmers who are, who are using this technique of measuring the amount of water that their crops are using, measuring the amount of moisture that's in the soil, reduced their irrigation by 30% and still enjoyed high yields. And then out wow. here in California, um, with some berry suppliers, we've seen exactly the same results, that it was about 30% reduction in irrigation water, but still your high yields. And so even just, just monitoring and timing your applications for when your crops most need the water is a great, great way to, um, to, um, to really maximize the benefit that you're getting from your irrigation water. Right, and to conserve it at the same time. That makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me. Um, what about other countries? I mean, other countries are experiencing uh, drought conditions. What, what are they doing to address this, or are they not? I know we're going way well, off topic here, but I'm just curious. Like, internationally <laughs> speaking, like, are we way behind? Are we ahead? You know, where are we fitting into that as, as an agricultural nation? Uh, well, I think that we have the benefit here in the United States of a lot of um, a lot of advanced technology. Um, yeah. We're we're really lucky compared to a lot of other countries that um, that we have a lot of a lot of the innovators in terms of developing agricultural technology. Um, so whether that's your actual hardware of your of your irrigation system, you know, your drip lines or your um, or your even the center pivot was a huge innovation several decades ago now. So where you would use sprinklers instead of just your gravity flood irrigation. Mm-hmm. Um, here, here in the United States, we um, are very lucky that we have the technology and and are able to um, to take advantage of it. Um, but across the world, one of the, one of the best things that you can do, and what we're seeing um, what we're seeing being very beneficial, is again investing in soil health. So. Um, so keeping the soil covered instead of, of plowing it up every year, um, using that no-till or conservation tillage techniques, using cover crops, those are, those are great, um, great ways that, that across the world in other countries that maybe don't have the benefit of the, um, of the advanced technology that we have here in the United States are really able to, um, to maximize their irrigation water as well. Very interesting. Um, let's uh, let's move on now. So um, I picked up an article, and I, I hope Jackie sent it to you. Uh, it was a prof- Harvard professor um, Stavens, who was part of uh, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and that's the recent report I'm assuming that we're all talking about here. Um, he told the Daily Mail in Britain on Sunday 
that the uh, that there was a um, he had been especially concerned by what happened as a special con- to, at a special quote contact group where he was only one of two uh, scientists present and, and surrounded by forty five or fifty government officials. He said almost all of them made clear that quote any text in the report that was considered inconsistent with their interests and positions in multilateral negotiations was treated as unacceptable. And indeed, uh, by the end of this discussion, uh, quite a large part of the of the report had been excised. Um, well, how did you respond to that information? Were, were you shocked by that, or is that just business as usual? Well, you know, if that's true, it is, it is kind of concerning, um, because it's clear that if we want to continue to have a thriving farm economy, that we need to, that we need to take action, and that we mm-hmm. need to act on climate change. And that means curbing carbon pollution, and um, and unless unless we are serious about um, about taking that action and about curbing carbon pollution, um, it it can have and is indeed already having a huge impact um, on our on our farm economy. Um, and so, whether that's internationally or here in the U.S., um, it's something that that we really do need to take seriously and we need to act on. Well, I think um, so. He goes on in this article, which uh, you can access. Uh, you know, your, I mean, I sent it to you, but or I sent it to Jackie, but uh, also listeners can access it. The name of the professor is Stavins, S T A V I N S, and he was part of uh, of the um, authorship of this uh, panel intergovernmental panel on climate change report. Um, And here's another quote from it. He revealed the original draft of the summary contained a lot of detail on how international cooperation to curb emissions might work and how it could be funded. But the final version contains only meaningless headings, however, with all details removed. This is as a result of the meddling of these various countries in that uh, closed-door meeting that he described in the earlier paragraph. Um, so the sense that I got from this is that international cooperation is is very far away from happening in terms of um, com- countries coming together and working together on curbing emissions and uh, developing these strategies that you've just spent the last 30 minutes describing to us about wa- water and soil conservation. <laughs> I mean, what is how does the NRDC respond to things like that? Or, or is it just like you're working on the American part of things and you're not part of these larger discussions? Well, I think that there are people at NRDC that are part of the discussions, right. and and it is important. It is important that we that we act on climate change. And here in the U.S., we do have a, a good opportunity with the Environmental Protection Agency having proposed um, the first the first limits on future power plants for carbon pollution, and getting ready to propose limits on existing power plants to limit their carbon pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a good step forward for the United States. But, you know, there's more work to be done. And mm-hmm. and we do need to, we all need to be contributing to um, to solving this huge problem, solving this this challenge of our generation. And it's important not only for us and for, for farmers today, but for future generations to make sure that we have the food security that we need, um, not only in this country, but in the, across the world. Yeah, I mean, it does come down to an issue of uh, food security. And, I, and you know, we have a couple of minutes to chat about that now. I mean, what would happen? Uh, how do you foresee agricultural production changing in terms of geography? Are we going to be moving everything up uh, to Canada and the Arctic Circle <laughs> in, <laughs> in another 25 years or something? I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting to speculate on what's going to happen, particularly in light of like, you know, the ice pack is melting. And so there's a lot more land out and there you know i mean there's so many things changing as a result of this how do you see agriculture evolving 
Well, we've already seen it evolve, and it's not just it's not just crops that are going to be that are going to be moving north to Canada. It's it's weeds too. So I don't know um, <laughs> if you're familiar with the weed kudzu, um, but I it's am. sort of this like science fictiony type of plant that just comes in and takes over, and it's. Yes had been pretty much confined to the south previously, but now we've seen it as far north as Canada, which is really concerning. Um, and there are certain types of crops like cherries that require a, a certain number of chilling hours in order to be productive. And, um, and we're getting to the point where it's a lot harder to, to get those, the, the number of chilling hours that we need here in California to produce, um, to produce fruits like cherries. And so, you know, it's, um, we've already seen the impacts of climate change. We don't have to, um, and, and all of these, it's unfortunate, but all of these things were predicted. This is exactly what, um, this is exactly what scientists said would happen, and, and we're seeing it come true. And so it, it, we don't have any time to lose. We need to act, and we need to, to take action so that we do have um, food security um, in the future. So, um, and by food security, I mean, we're, we're talking about whether or not we can grow food in this country, because if our production uh, moves north, then we don't, we will no longer be controlling our production of food, correct? That's right. And, and not only that, but food, we can expect food quality to be impacted as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just starting to see some studies that are, that are looking at the protein, um, the protein quality, the level of protein in some of our major cereal grains. Um, and we're seeing a decline in the protein levels. And so, um, and so that's, you know, it's not just whether we're going to be able to grow food, but, but what type of nutrition are we, are we getting from our food and how is that going to be impacted? I did not realize um, and not only that, but distribution of food as well. Right. During the drought, you might remember that the Mississippi River um, actually, you know, barges got stopped. They couldn't move down the Mississippi River. So that really impacted our ability to distribute food. Um, and so it's, it's really wide-sweeping, the, the impacts that climate change is having on our food security. Very interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the, about the fact that we couldn't distribute food. Because I, you know, I don't think people realize how much food we move via water. Can you give us a sense of, of how big the numbers are for that? So the Mississippi, I imagine the Colorado River is another big uh, artery for moving food. Yeah, well, the Mississippi River is the biggest is the biggest artery. That's where we see most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not only it's not only just the food that we're moving in this country, but we we already import about thirteen percent of our grains, twenty percent of our vegetables, and almost forty percent of our fruit. Eighty five percent of our fish and shellfish are imported, and yeah. so you know um, it's not just about moving food here in the U S. It's about it's about you know are we going to be able to to get food here to the U S. Um, and so it's really um, it's really important that we that we really take action and and act to improve our food security. Well, given that, why don't we uh, talk for a minute or two about how people can take action and let's let's promote the NRDC. <laughs> Tell people <laughs> where they can learn more. On that one. Um, <laughs> how can I, they I learn more? That, that that the big opportunity right now to engage and really take action and and voice your support for actions that will protect our food security and 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 mitigate climate change. Um, you can visit www.nrdc.org, and we have a place where you can um, where you can show support for the EPA's um, proposal to limit carbon pollution from power plants. Power plants make up almost half of the carbon pollution in this country, um, and we already limit um, other pollutants like arsenic and lead from these power plants. But yep. there's currently no regulation on on carbon pollution, which is what's causing mm-hmm. these problems associated with climate change. So again, if you visit nrdc.org. 
you can um, you can act show your support for actions to to um, curb pollution that's causing climate change. Well, that sounds great. Um, but I think that I, I want to go back for just a second because when you tell me about uh, the EPA uh, finally bringing legislation to bear on industries producing carbon emissions, um, you know, the EPA, uh, an underfunded, understaffed body, if ever there was one, uh, they've pretty much given a free pass to uh, big ag, and that's had a very serious impact on the quality of soil and on the quality of water and the quality of our air. So um, do you think that uh, the EPA is going to be ever more aggressive in addressing these climate change issues, or will they always be more or less in the pocket of uh, large agricultural concerns as they have been over the last oh, 40, 50 years? Well, I think I think this is really a unique opportunity. Well, first of all, we know that, that power plants are almost half of the carbon pollution. So this is a great step that EPA has taken to limit this limit these large emitters of carbon pollution that's causing climate change. Yeah, I don't know how um, they got that comes- through. <laughs> <laughs> When it, com- when it comes to farmers, we really have a unique opportunity because mm-hmm. farmers have, have the ability to be part of the solution. When they're doing practices like cover crops, when they're doing practices like no-till farming, they're not only making themselves more resilient to the problems associated with climate change, but they're also helping to sequester carbon and become part of the solution. Right. And so I think that we really have a great opportunity here um, to engage the, the farm community and invite them to be part of the solution. And, and it will not only make them more resilient, to these challenges that we are going to see more of and more of unless we act, but it will also um, help to, to prevent those problems from um, from significantly worsening, prevent the worst impacts of climate change. Yeah, and I so think... it's a unique opportunity um, that, that the agricultural community has. Yeah, absolutely. So the question is, like, how do you, I mean, as you alluded in the beginning of the program, um, there is uh, definitely a learning curve in terms of changing uh, best practices and like understanding that these sort of uh, changes in, in in their protocols have to be effected and, and there's a little bit of resistance to changing what people have done. Is there a, a sort of national agricultural campaign to change things or is it just a, a kind of anecdotal one farmer spreading the good news to the, another farmer? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, But what we propose here at the NRDC, I mentioned that that crop insurance is really where farmers are looking to to manage their risk, and it's really not setting them up to be um, prepared for the challenges of climate change. What we propose here at NRDC is to offer essentially a good driver discount, like you might get on your car insurance, to farmers who are using practices like cover crops to um, to really reduce their risk of loss. Of course, the benefit then um, from our perspective as an environmental organization is that it will also help um, clean up the water, prevent erosion, um, mitigate climate change. So there are all these other benefits. But um, from a strictly insurance standpoint, we know, as I mentioned, that farmers who are using these practices to enhance their soil health are less likely to lose their crops. And so this good driver discount is really a great way that we think we can catalyze the interest in in cover crops, in soil health, and and begin to um, be more prepared for the impacts of climate change on the farm. Well, God bless you, honey. (laughs) 
<laughs> Praise the Lord that, that an organization like the NRDC exists. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up right there, Claire, but I want to thank you very, very much for joining me on the program today. Great, great interview. Uh, you are just a wealth of information. I want to do a bunch of programs about uh, drought, water management, and conservation uh, over the next few weeks and months, so I hope you'll come back again and uh, tell me more about what you're doing and what we can do as consumers to uh, both opt in ourselves and also to support the agricultural community and doing what they should be doing. So um, thanks again to you and thanks to my sponsor. Thank you to my engineer, Jack Inslee, and uh, we'll see you next week with another program. So long now. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.